If you would turn with me, please, to Luke, the second chapter, verses 21 to 35. There are two events that Luke lists for us. One is the circumcision of Jesus, and the second is the consecration of Jesus. Both of these events take place at different time periods, but he puts them together. I don't think he had a whole lot to say about the first one. Just wanted to note it and make sure we understood it. But the second one, he spends a lot of time in discussion. So let's start with verse 21 of the second chapter. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is the second event. The first was circumcision. Thirty days later, now, the time of purification. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I've always been a believer in baby bonding. Most mothers do it naturally in their nurturing and caring for infants, but so can fathers and grandfathers. I got down on the floor and played with Nathan and Aaron when our children were little, but I know some dads who never do that. I did the same with each one of my grandsons. Some dads say they want to wait till their child is five or six and then begin the bonding, but oh my, what you miss in all those five years. Most child counselors and Pediatricians will say that the most uh, important years are the first five years of a child's development. That's when their senses are so keen. That's when they learn so much. They're like little sponges that soak up everything. And so it wouldn't be unusual for me to get on the floor and roll around with the boys. They would come lay on my chest and I would hold on to them and we'd roll over and over and over. I always kept my elbows down so I didn't squash them. I didn't hurt them. But we'd roll over in the floor back and forth. And I did that with every one of them, all four of them. The first five years is terribly important for them to learn what's going on and the surroundings around them. When they were little, I'd take them for walks in the neighborhood. They couldn't say much, but their little ears would perk up when they'd hear dogs bark, and they always bark at you. Or when they'd hear the birds chirp, we'd pick up rocks and throw a few stones and do those kinds of things just to stimulate them and to get them to see what nature and life 
had to offer, even as a six-month-old, as a year-old child. <laughs> My grandson, the oldest one, Grant, is now 16, but when he was about a year, year and a half old, I would click with him. It was kind of our little signal. I'd go, and if I clicked, that meant I was somewhere in the house. I was somewhere in the room. And when he and his mom and dad would come visit us before the other boys came along in Fort Worth, I would be in the foyer of the church where I pastored. And if I saw them come in and they did not see me, I would click. I'd go, and Grant would just whip his little neck around trying to find Pap because he knew that click meant that I was somewhere in the house. And that was our way of communicating with each other. I did that with all the G4s, though, all four of them. I took them for walks, as I said, when they were little, and we'd get in the floor and roll around, and we tried to bond as best that we could when they were little and young. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to the convention over in Waco, Texas, and my mother lives in Waco, and so does my sister, who takes care of my mother. She will be 97 on Tuesday of this week, but we visited with them for a while, and then we went back at Thanksgiving and visited with them again. And my sister has a new grandbaby. He's a year and a half old, and his name is Henry. And Henry and I bonded. We got to like each other. First, it was kind of standoffish, and then it was better. She sent me a text on December the 6th and said, I just played two videos for Henry, and he just laughed and laughed, and then he said, Bob. <laughs> he hadn't forgotten me. That little bit of bonding that took place. It, it's amazing with children how well they uh, can pick up and understand in just a little bit of time. All you have to do is give them a little attention. Spend some time with them. Get down on their level. You know, by the time a child's five, then most they ever see are kneecaps. And so we as adults have got to get down on the floor with them, and we've got to play with them and get down on their level you see, there was a bonding taking place a month after Jesus was born in the city of Jerusalem with Jesus and Simeon, who was probably a grandpa too. But there was some strong bonding that took place. But this bonding was not a passing, fleeting moment in time. It was an event that Simeon had waited for his entire life. This bonding was a bonding of generations, not just in years, but in spiritual growth and anticipation. Luke begins his accounts with Jesus' circumcision. He, he starts there and mentions it and then moves on to this time of consecration. You see, there was a birth issue even in Jesus' day. The Gnostics believed that God would never inhabit the flesh because the flesh was full of sin. And so God, being God, would never become incarnate. Couldn't do that. And so they said, well, Jesus really wasn't God because God wouldn't inhabit a body. And they would acknowledge, though, that, you know, Jesus could have been born, but if he was born, he wasn't God. Because a human being cannot become God. So the Gnostics had a difficult time combining the notion of incarnation. They had a difficult time understanding that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. That's why John wrote the way he did in the beginning of his gospel. That's the, why he made it so clear that, yes, God did become flesh and live among us. But they weren't the only folks that doubted his birth. There was also the Roman law that stated any religion older than the Roman Empire was allowed to continue. <coughs> Excuse me. That's why Judaism was allowed to carry on their operation, allowed to have their temple worship, etc., because they were older than the Roman Empire. But 
If you were a movement or a religion that started after the Roman Empire, they would shut you down. And see, if you remember in your biblical studies, when Paul was on trial, that's what the Pharisees kept trying to say. No, no, no. Paul is not a Jew. He's this renegade group. He's part of this group called the Way. He's not part of us. We Hebrews believe this way. They're a faction. They started after the Rome. What they were trying to do is to get them to shut down this thing called the Way, this movement called Christianity. They were attempting to say, those Jews are not part of us. They're different. They're not the same. And Paul said, oh, yes, we are. We're the same as you. You just refuse to accept the Messiah who's come. But we are Jewish as well. You see, it's for both reasons that Luke writes in detail about the virgin birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. Both came out of Jewish families. Both were circumcised on the eighth day as the law commanded. And they both were consecrated and sacrifices made as the law commanded. Luke wanted it understood. You've got to remember where Luke comes from. Luke was not an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a Johnny-come-lately. He didn't accept Christ until Paul's missionary journeys, some 20 years after Christ lived on earth. And so Luke was not part of that original apostleship. So Luke is having to take information that he, got, he gathered from Mary, that he gathered from Peter and Mark, and compile it together for a person named Theophilus. And so he writes the gospel and he writes the book of Acts to tell Theophilus about who Jesus was. And so in this writing, he's depending upon others to give him information. But being a physician, he wants details. And he gives us those details very explicitly. That's why that uh, both of these men, John the Baptist and Jesus, when uh, they came for their time of consecration, you see, by custom, they were supposed to be named after their fathers. They were the firstborn. But Zechariah said, you know, you've got to name him John because the angel Gabriel said, name him John. And when Joseph came to consecrate his son, he said, you'll name him Jesus, not Joseph, because that's what the angel said to do. But the point to all this is that the writer Luke wants us to understand that these two families were deeply involved in Judaism. They were Jewish. Their beliefs, their practices, everything about them. So Luke is recording this event as it was told to him, as I said, by Mark, Peter, Mary, and others to let the readers know of Jesus' authenticity as a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day, like all Jewish boys were, just the same. You know my love for genealogy. I've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into that today. But I do watch PBS periodically because they have a program called Finding Your Roots. And Dr. Gates will take different personalities and uh, he'll go back in their roots and find out where they came from, et cetera, et cetera, and share with you his adventure and how he did it. A few weeks ago, they had on Bill Hader, who's Saturday Night Live fame, and they traced his lineage all the way back to Charlemagne, who ruled England in the 700s, not 1700s, 700s. And do you know how they traced that? It wasn't by DNA, they didn't have that. 
It wasn't by their driver's license. They didn't have that either. It wasn't by Social Security. None of that existed. The way that they traced them back was Henry Gates used documents from baptismal records of the churches in England and Europe to authenticate his lineage. Went to the churches in Europe and England and found the baptismal record that said this ancestor was baptized at this time and then went to another record and found another one of the ancestors that was baptized. And so that form of documentation gave the legitimacy and authenticity to Bill Hader that he could be traced all the way back to Charlemagne. So you see, baptismal records play a major role in genealogy. If you go to looking and you hit a brick wall, check out baptismal records. You might find something there. You see, circumcision played a major role for Jesus in his day. And so Luke wanted his readers to know that Jesus was born a Jew, had the circumcision to prove it, and was raised a faithful Jew by faithful practicing Jewish parents. Clearly, he states that and makes it understood. One of the greatest privileges that I've had in my 50 years of ministry is that I've baptized my two children and my four grandsons. Grandsons right here in this baptistry. And you all have been a large part of that. You all have been their Sunday school teachers. You have worked with them in upward basketball. You have gone to retreats with them. You've shared your love and your life with them. And it caused them to accept Christ as their Savior and follow him in baptism. And we have a lady in the office named Gail Sawyer who keeps record of all of those professions of faith and all those baptisms, and it's recorded in our huge filing cabinet as well as on our computer. So if you ever want to go check the records, you might want to start there and see if we have the records of baptism because it makes a difference. See, life moments are important. It was in Jesus' day, and it is in our day. So Luke said this life moment for Jesus was that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Mark it down. He was a true blue Jew, and you can't take it from him. And his parents were involved in his rearing and understanding of Judaism. But secondly, the consecration of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, bound the law in grace together, the Old Testament with the New Testament. Simeon represents the Old Covenant of Israel as it related to the law of Moses. His going to the temple that day was no coincidence. Simeon went every day. He was a devout Jew. But he wasn't just hung up on Judaism because of the law. He, he was hung up on it because of his faith. His faith. That grace that motivated him and moved within him. He daily made his way to the temple. His devotion was expressed in the care with which he fulfilled the prescribed religious duties. Simeon was part of a group of earnest people who were expecting the consolation of Israel. The consoling peace that would bring joy to the entire world. That period in time when the Messiah would come and give us hope and give us new beginning and give us a new start. 
You see, this phrase, consolation of Israel, was used by the rabbis for the fulfillment of the messianic hope. If you look back to Isaiah, the 40th chapter, you'll hear about the hope that was described that was to come. But the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, you've got to remember, this was prior to the day of Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit had been on Mary. The Holy Spirit had been upon Zechariah and upon uh, Elizabeth, and it also had been upon Joseph. And the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. The Holy Spirit inspired him to go to the temple that day at that time. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he followed the direction of the Holy Spirit. I have been by more than one bedside when the one near to death seemed to be waiting until a child, a a father or a mother, a significant person had arrived prior to their death. And family would say to me, he or she waited until so-and-so came to see them one last time and then passed away. Simeon broke into song when he saw Jesus. And he said, man, now I can die in peace, for I have seen thy salvation. A light for the Gentiles and glory for the Jews. Simeon said, I've done it all. I've checked off my bucket list. (laughs) I've done everything. Now that I've seen the fulfillment of God's plan in this child named Jesus, the Messiah has come. You see, for Simeon, life was fulfilled in the bonding of two generations, his and Jesus. Unlike most Jews, Simeon held to his faith more than he did the law. His faith allowed him to hope, to anticipate, and to experience God's plan for his life and the lives of others who believed. He was not going through just the rituals and the rigmarole of Judaism every day. He wasn't just following the rote of it all. He was following the faith of it all. And allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to him. And guide him. And direct him. The two doves that were offered. They signified the lack of wealth held by Joseph. You see, it was customary for the firstborn male to be taken to the temple and an animal to be sacrificed. If you were wealthy, it would be a bull or it could be a ram. Or if you were in the lower part of the income bracket, it would be two doves or two pigeons that you could take. To say to God, thank you for taking care of my son. Thank you for delivering my son into this world. And I acknowledge who you are, God, and I sacrifice this on my child's behalf. But notice when they went, it was 30 days after Mary's purification. There was a time in which after childbirth, a woman was to wait 30 days before she entered the temple again, before she really got out into public again. And so there's a lot going on here that Luke does not tell us. We're supposed to just either understand or assume or read commentaries that help us to do those sorts of things. But Mary and Joseph went to consecrate their son as a Jew, as was customary. Notice how Luke gives us such detailed information about the act of consecration to ensure that his readers knew and did not misunderstand that Jesus was a Jew. 
Circumcised, consecrated. He wanted that clearly understood that Jesus was a Jew. But also to remind all mankind that his Messiah was not limited just to the Jews, but to all the people of the world. This was God's gift to all peoples. Simeon held on to the very end to experience this event. And my question for us is, what do you hold on to today? Where do you find your hope, your anticipation, your experience with God's plan for your life? What gives you the drive, the the dynamic? What gives you the hope? If it's not the Holy Spirit, if it's not Jesus Christ, what holds you together? Do you come to church filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you come anticipating God is going to do something in your life? Do you worship with hope? You see, Simeon says, I can die, Lord. (laughs) Take me home. I've seen it now. I have seen it all. I've seen everything to understand and know that you have fulfilled your promise of the Old Testament into my life and into the life of others who would believe. I can die. Let me go. Take me home. I've seen it all. But notice, this light not only came on for Simeon, but he makes it very clear that all of God's plan was clear for him, his future, but also somebody else. He quotes the Old Testament when it was said of the prophets of old, Christ is a light for the Gentiles. How about that? This just isn't a story about Judaism. This is a story about salvation and hope for all of us. You and I were not left out. This light came for all of us. Some years ago, When I pastored in San Angelo, I invited some pastors who formerly had pastored the church where I was to come back and preach on a weekend revival kind of basis. And some of them did. One of them was Joe P. Self. Joe went into ministry later. He uh, was an an older man when he surrendered to ministry. And and before that, he had been a farmer in West Texas. And uh, I know this is really West Texas, but we call Abilene in that area West Texas also. But between here and there, he had a farm. Lived out on that farm for many years. But back in the early 50s, uh, they had a thunderstorm to blow up. He and his wife had gone to visit some family, and the rain just began to pour and just had a horrible thunderstorm. So they decided to go on home because they weren't sure about how they would find their farm. And so, sure enough, they had heard from some neighbors that the rain had started at the watershed and that everything was just coming downstream in a huge flood. And so they made their way towards their farm, and as they got to the end of the road where they were going to pass over the bridge, they had water up to the running boards. Now, how many of you all know what a running board is? Yeah, you're older than me then. Okay. Or at least my age. For those of you that don't know, it's kind of like a step on one of those big pickup trucks. You have a step down that you can step on and then step up into the truck. But this ran all along for the back seat and the front seat of the vehicle, the front door and the back door. And you could just, if you wanted to, just jump on the running board and hold on to the window and just ride down the street. Wasn't advisable, but that's what you could do. And so 
they had running boards. And Joe said that the water had gotten up to his running board and there was a few ditches that he hit. And when he did, the water splashed up onto the engine and the car died. So it was still a little bit of light left. It wasn't quite dark yet. So he told his wife to take the umbrella and to go over to the bridge and go ahead and walk over and go on home. And he'd be there in a few minutes. He was going to dry out the spark plugs and then bring the car onto the house. She made her way across the bridge, and everything was fine. And as she did, the water was licking at the bottom of the bridge. But the rain continued to come. As Joe was drying off the spark plugs, just about got them finished. But by the time he had, the water was over the bridge, and he couldn't see it in the darkness of the night. What was going to be a 15-minute spark plug dry ended up being an hour So his wife called a neighbor and said, Can you go find Joe for me? I left him at the bridge. The spark plugs got wet. He was drying them out, but he hadn't gotten home yet. So the neighbor got in his pickup truck with a big flashlight and headed down to the bridge. And on his side of the bridge, he could see where the rails were and the sides, but Joe couldn't see from the other side because the water was higher over there. And the farmer friend took his big old flashlight and turned it on, and he held it out towards Joe. They could see each other, and he hollered at him. He said, Joe, come to the light. Come to the light. You see, he knew that he couldn't see where the bridge was because the water was over the top. So he said, come to me. Come to the light. And Joe listened. He made a straight line from where he was to the light. That's what our Lord sang to us at Christmas. Come to the light. Jesus said, I am the light. (laughs) I'll lighten your darkness. I'll show you the way. Come to me. When the waves are hidden at the bottom of the bridge, when you're not sure where to step, when you're not sure which way to go, when you feel like you're being overwhelmed at Christmas because people want this and that, and the demands are so great, and you feel like you're just going to be swallowed up, Jesus says, come to the light. Come to me, and I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. When you think you can't make it, you can. But come to me and let me take care of you. Let me give you the hope that you lack. Let me, in the midst of your storms, find your way home. My prayer is today that we all will find our way home. That we all will find our way to the Lord who promises to help us to guide us, and to strengthen us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts today because there's times when our lives feel overwhelmed. There are times when we feel like we can't go on. There's times when we feel like we're in the darkness and there is no light to see and our path is so confusing. So, Father, help us as only you can. Speak to us now. And if we need to come to the light, whether that's to accept you as Lord and Savior, whether it is to join this church by letter, whether it is to become part of this family, whatever you're speaking to us in this hour, help us to be responsive. 
Father, help us to realize that you love us and that you care for us and that you are the light of the world. Speak to us now as only you can. For it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.